you want to make your way in and find a seat, we can, we can jump in. 2 Kings 22 and 23, that's where we'll be this morning. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn there with me, 2 Kings chapter 22, we'll be going through chapter 23, and Josiah and the Word and the satisfaction of God. Josiah, the Word and the satisfaction of God. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer as we jump in. Father, we have, yeah, we just praise you and thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, for not leaving us in the dark, for not leaving us uncertain of who you are, of what your will is, of what you require, of what you desire, of what satisfies you, of what incurs your wrath, of how your wrath can be borne away. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us, who lived a righteous life we could not, who fulfilled all the commands of your law, who went to the cross, a blameless sacrifice, who was put to death to satisfy the penalty of our sins, who was raised from the grave for our justification, declared righteous before you and All of us who are in him declared righteous before you. And so we pray that for any who have not believed that word, that message, that this morning you would humble their heart to repent and to believe, to trust in Christ. For all of us who have believed, we pray that your word would dwell in us richly, that we would live under your word that we would feed upon your word each day, that we would meditate upon your word night and day, that we would walk by your word and speak your word and be humbled by your word and not seek any change or transformation in our lives or the lives of others apart from your word and your spirit working through your word. So help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, think about for a minute just how eagerly and consistently and devotedly we interact with food. I mean, we think often of food. How often do we ask someone, what's for dinner? Where do you want to go for dinner? What's for breakfast? Where do you want to go for lunch? We work hard at our jobs to have money for food. Just think about how many hours a week you spend making shopping lists, then driving to the store, then actually shopping for food, then buying the food, then transporting the food, then storing the food, then preparing the food, then eating the food, then digesting the food. Only within a couple hours from that moment when you're done digesting it, you start all over again. We schedule our days around food. We organize so much of our life around food. And so if an alien were to come to our planet without any knowledge of food or what food is and just observe our way of life, then surely that alien is going to conclude, wow, y'all really care about food. You orient your lives around food. You barely want to go gather with people if there's going to be food. Could the same conclusion be made about how we as Christians relate to the Word of God if outsiders were to come in and observe our way of life and see how we spend our days, would they come to a similar conclusion? Wow, you really care about the Word of God. You spend a lot of time thinking about the Word of God, feeding on the Word of God, digesting the Word of God, speaking about the Word of God, orienting your whole life around the Word of God. God's going to lead Israel into the wilderness from Egypt after leading them through the Red Sea, redeeming them from Egypt from the, through the blood of a lamb, and He's going to bring them to the wilderness without food. He's going to feed them with manna from heaven in order to make them understand one very important truth, and what is it? What's that truth he's going to teach them? He's going to provide, yeah, that man does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's that word that he provides that that manna was meant to symbolize and picture. Moses, at the end of his life, in his final sermons in Deuteronomy 32, 47, he's going to say, this is not an empty word for you, but your very life. We could say this is not an idle word. God isn't just yapping. Your life depends upon this word. David calls the word of God more desirable than gold, Psalm 19.10. Do you desire it more than money? Do you think about storing it up in your heart more than you think about storing up money? Do you think about retiring to a place that's just full of the word of God more than you think about retiring to a good retirement fund? David says it's sweeter than honey. The psalmist calls the word of God a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, Psalm 119.105. Does it illumine your way? Do you make decisions only after you've sought the Lord in prayer and considered his word? Do you ask him to help you interpret all of life, all your decisions, all your relationships through the light of his word? Psalm 119 called the testimonies of God his counselors. All the words of God. It's like having a hundred counselors around him where you can just always consult them, hear what they think, what they say how they would guide him. Jesus is going to say to the Father in John 17, 17, your word is truth. He'll say nothing of the sort about anything else in all the world other than himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says, and Father, your word is truth. How much do we need that? Do we believe this about the Word of God? That's the first question I want you to ask yourself is, do you believe these things about the Word of God? Because if we truly long for revival in our land and reformation in our churches and transformation of our souls, then we have to begin with the Word of God. The Lord used Ezra mightily because he, Ezra 7.10, set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's why God used him, to reform a nation, to lead a nation, because he set his heart to study the law of the Lord, set his heart to feed on this word, and then to do it, to live by it, and then to teach it. Through his spoken words, God created the world. Just think about that a minute. God spoke and stuff was made out of nothing. Through his written word, he saves souls. He transforms lives. He reforms whole communities. And so though our devotion to the word of God does not save us, God does save us through words, gospel words that are believed by faith, taken to the heart, and he uses it by the Spirit's power to bring us to life, to give us new birth. Our delight in Scripture does not satisfy the wrath of God. It does, however, lead us to the one who does satisfy the wrath of God. So the main idea, you'll see it in the notes, is that real transformation of human hearts and lives comes through the Word of God, but only to those for whom the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. It's where real transformation comes from. It's through the word of God. But it didn't work for the Pharisees or the Sadducees. It doesn't work for the unbelieving. It only actually does that work for those who, by God's grace, have been united to Christ and his wrath has been borne away. And the reign of Josiah is certainly going to make that truth plain. The kind of change that the word of God will bring about in his heart, in his life, in the life of a whole nation is nothing less than miraculous. And so we need to pray for the Lord to give us his heart for hearing the word of God, his heart for believing it, for obeying it, for being led by it. 
And yet, as we'll see, his humility, his repentance, his obedience will still not be enough to pay for sins. It still won't be enough to bear away the wrath of God. A whole other king's going to have to come to do that. But we'll start with the power of the word that's going to be evident in his life and in the nation under his reign. So 2 Kings verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkoth. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So those are the words that are going to summarize the reign of Josiah. Though he was not sinless, he lived by faith. His heart was oriented toward God. His heart was oriented to desiring to please God, to trust God, to follow God. And according to 2 Chronicles 34.3, he really began to seek the Lord at the age of 16. That's when he really sought him. And it's evident in sort of how the Lord moved him to restore the temple in verses 3 through 7, right here in 2 Kings 22. It's most evident in his response to the revealed word of God that are going to be in the verses to follow. Notice how in verse 8, Hilkiah, the high priest, finds the book of the law in the temple as they're cleaning it out which is going to mean the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He's going to give it to Shaphan, the the secretary, who's going to read it. And then after reading it, he's going to go, oh, I've got to bring this to King Josiah. He's going to want to hear this. And so he's not afraid to bring it. He already knows this king wants to know what God thinks. So he brings the books of the law before him and probably is going to begin to read from Deuteronomy based on Josiah's response. So we're going to see a heart convicted by the word of God, starting in verse 11. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, which is an act of mourning, of grief, of deep sorrow and repentance. He hears these words read, and just it crushes him. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asiah the king's servant saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. You just think, what a reaction just humbles him. And how different from so many kings before him. Remember, we looked at Ahab who imprisoned prophets for speaking the word of God. Amaziah is going to threaten to kill prophets because they spoke the word of God, because they brought the word of God. I mean, Jeremiah is going to be in and out of prisons for speaking the word of God to kings. And we don't know exactly what part of the law Josiah is hearing at this point, only that we see the effect, humility, conviction, repentance, fear of the Lord, desire to hear more. That's important. He didn't go, oh no, slam the book and run. He says, go find out more. Go find a prophet. Go find a prophetess. Inquire of the Lord. It just crushes him but in such a way that he desires more of God. That's truly a mark of real repentance, of real faith, is it humbles you toward God. It convicts you toward God. It crushes you into his hands. It provokes sort of a fear, but a fear that drives you to him for help. So they're going to go find Huldah, the prophetess in Jerusalem, verse 15. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord. And I love that. Like she knows who sent them. Like the king. What does she call him? The man. Hey, tell the dude that sent you. Tell the guy. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place. And upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah read, 
because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Not a little of it, all of it. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. Nothing to be done. So the answer of the Lord to Josiah through Huldah, the prophetess, is, yes, you heard and read right. I will do exactly what I say that I was going to do. I love this, verse 18. But to the king of Judah, notice that, she's changed. Tell the dude, now it's, but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, in other words, it was repentant and broken, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. And so the repentance of Josiah does not remove the costs and consequences of sin or the sin of the nation. It does defer the ultimate costs and consequences for him personally. Saying, okay, I'm going to spare you all the evils that I'm going to bring upon this nation. But even more, I'm going to bring you to the grave in peace, which is a really important statement because that suggests he's been reconciled to God. Because there's no other way you go to the grave in peace unless on that other side of the grave you're going to face somebody you're reconciled to. So even that is a statement that, yeah, we're good. We've been reconciled. This faith I've given you in hearing and believing and repenting at the hearing of the word of God is a saving kind of faith. So you tell him, I'm going to bring him to the grave in peace. The other reason we know this is a spiritual peace is he's actually going to die in battle, which is not a peaceful way to go. So whatever that coming to the grave in peace is, it's not old age. It's not easy physical circumstances. No, he's going to be brutally struck down. But God says, but you're going to go to the grave in peace. Because you're reconciled to me. And so how does that work? Why does Josiah get to go to the grave in peace? That's a question we'll come back to later. For now, what we need to see is the faith and repentance and the transformation that God's word produced. We're going to see not just a heart convicted by the word of God, but now a heart that is compelled by the word of God. Notice chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined in the covenant. So this thing just takes over Josiah. It's now going to compel everything he's going to do as a king. And now in his leading, he's not so concerned anymore with the road conditions, with the water conditions, with the infrastructure in the nation, with the army, with all his household being in order, with the impressiveness of his palaces. No, it's all, we got to get everybody before God, humbled, repentant, beneath the word. We've got to renew this covenant with him. So the grace of God through the word of God is going to bring real transformation in his life. And in verses 4 through 24, we're going to see Josiah, he's going to enact 16 reforms in the nation, really radical reforms. In verse 4, he's going to take all the vessels of false worship from the temple and burn them outside Jerusalem. All these vessels of false worship that kings before him had amassed and stored in the temple, he's going to take them all out and burn them. In verse 5, he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah 
had set up for all their false worship. Going to remove them all. Every last one of them, just depose them. No interviews. No, hey, do you mind changing a little bit? No, you're fired. All of you are fired. Verse 6, he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord and burned it at the brook of Kidron and beat it to dust. There's a statement. So previous kings had put it in the temple. Hezekiah moved it out. Manasseh put it back in. Now Josiah brings it out and just beats it to dust. Says, we're not doing this again. Verse 7, he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. Not just evict them and then get somebody else in, like reduce the houses to rubble. He brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah in verse 8 and defiled the high places where the priests made offerings. So all these other cities throughout Judah, all these false altars, all these false priests, just kick them all out, break down all those altars, find every one of them. Now, this is something that even reformed kings before him didn't do. Remember how often it would say that they reformed this, they did this, this, but it says, but yet the high places were not taken away. Well, he's going after everything. Also in verse 8, he broke down the high places of the gates. Verse 10, he defiled Topheth, which was in the valley of the son of Himon, which is where it was an altar. It was the name of an altar where parents burned their children as an offering to Molech. That's what that altar was. Well, he defiled it. Verse 11, he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun and burned the chariots of the sun with fire, verse 11. Verse 12, he pulled down all the false altars in the courts of the Lord, broke them in pieces, cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. How total is his destruction of this system? Like how many times you see pounded it to dust, to dust, to dust. Verse 13, the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built. Josiah is going to go back to Solomon. That's 15 generations that's been sitting there. And Josiah's like, yeah, we're going to defile that. I don't care who built it. Solomon or any other king, it's going to come down. And it's significant because east of Jerusalem, that's the place where Messiah is meant to enter from the east in his first coming and his second coming. And they had these false altars there. So Josiah's like, we're getting rid of all that. Verse 15, he pulled down and burned, reducing to dust the altar at Bethel that Jeroboam erected. That's 14 generations back. This is almost 300 years before, by the way, that all this was made. He's going back three centuries and just tearing it down. Verse 16, he dug up the bones of the false prophets, burned them on the altar, and defiled it. Which is exactly what God said would happen through the prophet who spoke to Jeroboam, Jeroboam and the altar in 1 Kings 13.2. If you know that story, God sent a prophet to the northern kingdom where Jeroboam had set up this altar at Bethel. And he prophesied against Jeroboam and against the altar saying that the bones were going to be burned on it, and even named the person, said someone by the name of Josiah is going to do this. Almost 300 years before the prophet had said it, and named him who was going to do all this. And then we see the tomb of the true prophet that spoke against the altar. Josiah does not touch it, but he honors it. He knows the difference between a true and false prophet. I think it's worth us asking ourselves, do we know the difference? between a true prophet and a false prophet, between someone who preaches the word faithfully and someone who distorts it, twists it. Verse 19, Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria. Verse 12, he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. you, You heard it right. He sacrificed the priests, which was precisely what the law said to do. Anyone who worships falsely this way, leads the nation this way, and you put them to death. Verses 21 through 23, and perhaps the most encouraging reform of them all, it says, Josiah led the nation in keeping the Passover. It says, and no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, 
or during all the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. Who does that include? David. Hezekiah. Says he's going to lead the nation into a celebration of Passover like no king had ever done in the nation. Go back all the way to Judges. You never saw a celebration like this one for Passover. So it's important to see it's not, he's not just a king that tore stuff down. He's a, stuff that, he's a king that built stuff up. In other words, he celebrated the redemption of God's people from Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb like no one ever had before him in the land. That's how moved he is by grace, how moved he is by his redemption, how overwhelmed he is by the fact that God would forgive them through the blood of a lamb. Verse 24, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written. That's what it says of him. So he tore stuff down and he built stuff up. He tore down this massive system of idolatry and false worship and state-sponsored evil and he built up the word of God the Passover, the worship of Yahweh. Verse 25, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. What that means is there's no king that ever had to turn a nation around the way he did. So David was a man after God's own heart. David was faithful. David was pleasing to the Lord, but David didn't have to deal with what Josiah dealt with. David didn't have to tear all this stuff down that had been up in the nation for 300 years. That's why it says, no king before him turned so strongly to the Lord and no king after him. Such a great model. We see a heart consumed by the word of God, convicted by the word of God, compelled by the word of God, now consumed by the word of God. But just to think about that in a day when the nation, even the whole world, was in the sewer, that's what he inherits as an eight-year-old. That's what he's starting to see as a 16-year-old. And now he's hearing from the word of God, and really the light now is coming on, and he's beginning to see just how bad it is. The world is in the sewer, this nation in the sewer, full of idolatry, immorality, violence, false worship, injustice. Josiah is going to hear the word, believe the word, and then act upon the word. In other words, he doesn't gripe about the state of the world. That's not where he goes. He doesn't blame his parents for not doing a good job raising him. He doesn't bemoan all the previous generations that put him in this mess. He doesn't complain to God about not fixing the nation and taking all his problems away. You don't see any of that. No, it says he turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. You heard those words before? All right, Deuteronomy 6. This is how you're to love the Lord your God. It's the essence of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Well, those are the exact words that we read here in 2 Kings about Josiah. It's exactly the heart God gave him. So Josiah begins with his own heart, with inner submission to God's word, no matter what. And I think that's a priceless lesson for us. That's always where it begins. It's always the most important part. It's always what God thinks is most primary. He really doesn't care about what you think about what's going on in the world. He knows. He sees it. Meaning that's not what he first cares about. What he cares about is do you see what's going on in here? Are you grieved by sin? Are you moved by grace, celebrating grace, thankful for grace? Are you primarily concerned with worshiping? And helping others see the glory and the beauty of this Savior who's redeemed you. 
Is your marriage in trouble? Is your family in turmoil? Is your workplace in shambles or your church or your neighborhood or your nation or your world? Do you wonder where to begin? We'll begin with you and God and his word together. That's always where you begin. You go to your knees. You pray. You open his word. You receive. You feed on it. You take it to heart. You begin by tearing your clothes and weeping over sin and humble prayer. Begin by remembering the gospel and looking to Christ and receiving grace. Because this is a principle I found that almost always holds true in my relationships, that I can usually measure the length of a conflict and dispute by the time it gets me to get to this condition of heart. That's usually how I can measure the length of the dispute. In a relationship, in marriage, with kids, whatever it might be, that usually the length of the conflict can be measured by how long does it take me to get here in genuine contrition before God, genuine contrition before others, genuine love for others, desire for reconciliation. And the argument ends. It doesn't mean their sin magically it's taken care of. It doesn't mean they stop arguing. It just means I stop arguing in the same way. The fight will be over. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a question we have to ask ourselves in conflict and relationships and fighting. Do you want to win or do you want grace? Do you want to prevail over your adversary or do you want grace from God? And amazingly, most of us go, I think I'd rather win. I think I'd rather have the last word. I think I'd rather get my way. I think I'd rather fill in the blank. It's like we'd rather have that than grace. (laughs) And God says, yeah, I oppose the proud, but I give grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, 6, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God just says, that's who I look to. That's who I listen to. Because I wonder... Can the Lord really take us seriously if we don't take his word seriously? If we thought about that, in all of our prayers, and all of our words to God, and all the things that we think he ought to do or should be doing, have you ever asked, do I take his word as seriously as I want him to take my words? Because God loves us. He cares. He's a father who listens, who hears, for sure. But he does want us to get those priorities right. It's like when he says to husbands in 1 Peter 3, to dwell with your wife in an understanding way, it says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. You ever thought about what that means? Yeah, dwell with her in an understanding way, listen to her, take her words seriously. Otherwise, I won't take your words seriously. If you don't listen to what she says, I'm not listening to what you say. It's not a call to be ruled by your wife. It's a call to dwell with her in an understanding way. And we have those kinds of passages in Scripture where God says, yeah, I want to take you seriously. I want to hear, but you need to hear me first. My word needs to make the impression upon you most deeply. To the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, that's who God looks. God says to that person, I'm all ears. And so we have to ask ourselves, again, do we want to win? Do we want our way to prevail? Do we want our will to be done? Or do we want God to hear us, look to us, take us seriously? John 15, 5, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you want. And then we go, oh, so I can just ask for a new Mercedes? Okay, does the person who abides in Christ and whose Christ's words abide in them, is that what they go to? Is that on their, is it just a Christmas list from a four-year-old? Or is it built into the idea, no, if I'm abiding in you, you're abiding in me, my word's dwelling in your heart, well, then you're going to love what I love. You're going to long for what I long for. You're going to pray for what I pray for. And you just go look at the prayers of Jesus. That's what we'll pray. Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, your will be done. 
That's how Christ prayed. Therefore, if he's in us, us in him, our prayers are going to take that, that shape. So ask yourself now, how do you receive the word of God? Do you receive it, firstly, humbly? Is the soil of your heart soft to God's word, or is it hard? Does it bring you low and give you big thoughts of God? Do you submit beneath the word of God? Or do you tend to stand over it in judgment? Do you receive it soberly? Does the word of God awaken you to the reality of life, to what really matters? Does it make you serious about life? Does it sober you? I mean, when you think about it, if you've lost someone really dear to you, who really you loved and was precious to you, and in the day after their death, to, are you just hungry all the time for physical food? When you're grieving, when you're mourning? Or is there something about your physical appetite that is abated? There's just something that happens in deep grief, in deep soberness, that just the desires of the flesh don't seem as important. And that's some of what we're seeing here in Josiah's life. He received it soberly. Sorrowfully, when you hear the word of God, do you grieve your sin? Repentantly, once grieved, does the word of God turn you from sin to the Lord Jesus Christ? Thankfully, after grieving your sin, are you thankful? Thankful for grace. Thankful that God revealed it to you. It's like if you're having pains in your sort of chest area, thoracic cavity, and you go in to your doctor, they refer you to oncologists because of things that they see, and they do scans. Then you go in and sit with your oncologist, and they put all the scans on the wall, and they show you in your chest cavity just all the cancer that's there. And I'm going to say, you know, it's good that we caught this because we can do something about it. Do you just stand up and just punch that oncologist right in the face? Like, how dare they show you all that cancer that's in you. And yet it's interesting, that's a, kind of what we do when people confront our sin, right? <laughs> when God, through his word or through others, actually puts the, the scans up on the wall and says, hey, here's what's killing you. But hey, there's hope. There's help. There's treatment. And yet something in the flesh is offended by it. And, and we need to learn, how do we receive that thankfully? We see that in Josiah. There's, oh no, tear clothes, grieve, mourn, repent. But then there's going to be a Passover celebration. There's going to be thanksgiving. There's going to be gratitude. There's going to be, wow, what a loving God that he would turn us from these ways and reconcile us to himself. And so the conviction of sin and repentance and being confronted never just sits there in the pit, ashamed and bemoaning it. Because the gospel always leads us in such a way to Christ that is restorative and celebratory and happy. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's, it's not just a funeral about sin. It's a celebration about redemption and about forgiveness. Do you receive the word of God eagerly, humbly, soberly, sorrowfully, repentantly, thankfully, sixthly, eagerly? When you hear it, do you want more of it? Does it move you to change? Do you receive it joyfully? Does the word of God fill you with gladness in God? Do you receive it worshipfully? Does the word of God provoke you to praise God? And so Josiah is going to receive it and hear it. But despite all this, the repentance and reformations of Josiah... They're not going to be enough to satisfy the wrath of God, which is going to bring us to this next point, the satisfaction of God. When we look back at chapter 22 real quick, verse 17, we hear God's initial statement about the hopelessness of the nation. Verse 17, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not 
be quenched. It's like this mountain of dried wood soaked in gasoline for three days, and once the match is thrown on it, yeah, there's no putting it out. It's not going to be quenched. You just consider all the wildfires that have been burning across California all these recent years. If you've read about any of those, or even seen some of the footage, or heard some of the firefighters describe some of the scenes, just millions of acres consumed, whole buildings reduced to rubble, even human lives taken along the way, flames that are as hot as a furnace, and they're as tall as pine trees, like really tall pine trees. And these firefighters, like, you, you can't get close to it. Like in your little hose, like you're gonna take your little garden hose out your back door and just start squirting into that forest fire that's coming for you? Well, that's just a tiny infinitesimal fraction of what God's wrath is like. Because the day will come when his wrath comes and the whole world will melt with intense heat, Peter says. That's a fire. And so here, Josiah is, brings all these reforms of the nation, all his repentance, like no king before him. And God's wrath still is not satisfied. He's like, it still isn't enough. So you see there, the righteousness of Josiah is not enough. 2 Kings 23, verse 26. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Yes, still he's not going to turn. He's like, no, I'm going to, I will do this. Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo. As soon as he saw him, he's going to die in battle. He's going to die painfully. But as we'll see in a little bit, he's going to go to the grave in peace. According to 2 Chronicles 35, 25, Jeremiah is going to lament the death of Josiah. Jeremiah is living at this time, a prophet at this time, and he's going to grieve this king's death because he saw the kind of reforms that he brought. There was no king like him in the history of Israel and Judah who turned so strongly back to the Lord, who turned a nation so strongly back to the Lord, but all his efforts weren't enough. And this isn't a statement about the grumpiness of God or the bitterness of God or the irritability of God, but the absolute uncompromising holy nature of his character. He is righteous and holy perfectly, completely. And so you may be here this morning, you haven't missed a church service in 14 years. You grieve your sins. You really try to clean up your life. You don't lie or drink or chew or, you know, run with girls who do. You give your money to the poor. You take care of widows. Maybe you even recycle. You're nice to dogs and cats. You're really even willing to give up your body to be burned. You've been mistreated, perhaps even scorned for the name of Christ. None of that's enough. It'll never be enough. You may be the most righteous human being on the planet apart from Jesus Christ, and it still won't be enough. God's justice still won't be satisfied. In fact, the only way we could ever think that God's justice is satisfied with our good works and his wrath removed with our pious deeds is if we've just never met him before or taken to heart what he says in his word. That's the only way we can actually come to that conclusion. So in any witnessing situation, if somebody says, yeah, I think I'll, I'll be in heaven because I've, I've been a pretty good person and I've, what we're hearing is, okay, I don't think you've met him. I don't think you know the God who's there. I don't think you know how he's revealed himself through his word, what his nature is truly like. Even think about it, if you're a school teacher, are you satisfied with the sloppy assignments from your students that get turned in? 
If you're a coach, are you satisfied when players give half-hearted effort? As a business owner or a supervisor, are you satisfied when employees are showing up late, doing sloppy work, leaving early, stealing from the company? If paying for a meal at a restaurant, are you going to give it high praises, give high tips if it comes with maggots in it? Are you going to rate it well on Yelp? Are you going to be satisfied? So just think about it. We're flawed sinners. And if we have standards by which we're satisfied or not satisfied, then what do we think God is like? What do we think it takes for him to be satisfied? A perfect, absolute being who requires honor and worship perfectly from all his creatures. Hebrews 10.4, For it is impossible for the blood of goats to take away sins. So that whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, if that was done perfectly year after year, decade after decade, century after century, it still couldn't take away sins. Hebrews 10.11, And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Hebrews 10.11, These priests, they're there every day, all day in the temple, continually offering sacrifices day after day, and it still doesn't remove sins. He's like, it's still symbolic. So we have to ask, are we offering better and more frequent sacrifices for sins than the faithful priests of Israel did? It should make us wonder, can anybody escape? How does anyone go to the grave in peace? So now when we hear all that, we ought to now reread that verse and Josiah's going to go to the grave in peace and go, how's that even possible? How on earth can God give him that assurance? We're okay. We're reconciled. You're going to go to the grave in peace. Well, because the righteousness of Jesus is enough. That's why. That God can defer judgment upon Josiah's sins and bring him to the grave in peace because there's another king that's coming, a savior king, whose life and death will be so perfect, so pure, so righteous, so pleasing to God that the wrath of God, the justice of God, is actually satisfied in his work. He's going to actually look at Jesus and say, Behold, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And this son's going to die on a cross, and the father's wrath is going to be poured out on him and be satisfied for all those who are in him. Listen to Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've established that. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, meaning declared righteous before God, by his grace, meaning his undeserved, unmerited favor, as a gift through the redemption, that is the purchase from slavery, that is in Christ Jesus, the pardon that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which means a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith, not by works, but by believing, by trusting. This was to show God's righteousness. So God's showing the whole world. You want to know how righteous I am? Look at the cross. This is what my righteousness requires. Look at the resurrection. That's what satisfies my righteousness is the perfect, unblemished life of my son. That's it. That's my righteousness on display. Because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he passed over former sins, all the sins of previous generations, all the sins of Josiah. He's going to just defer them, pass over them. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that the present time of the cross All those deferred sins are now paid for. All those passed over sins of his people are now covered. So that he might be just, I mean that God might be just, not compromising his holiness, not compromising his character, every sin accounted for, so that he could be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he could be just, Still holy, still righteous, 
Every sin accounted for, and yet still justifies sinners. And how? Well, because he puts them in Christ, the one who has faith in Jesus. So God passed over the sins of Josiah, brought him to the grave in peace, because Josiah, by faith, is looking forward to another king. He's looking forward to a Messiah that God has been promising all through the Old Testament. He realizes that, okay, everything I do with the Word of God, all these reforms I'm doing, that's great, it's good, but it's a response to grace, not an earning of grace. We now know Jesus Christ is that Messiah who God put forward as, we saw the word, a propitiation, a satisfaction of wrath, a satisfaction of God's justice. That's where all his reading of the Bible took Josiah. Because he would have read about Moses saying, there's going to be a prophet that's raised up like me. And he's really going to save the nation. Well, Josiah's going to hear that, and that's what he's waiting on. That's what he's looking to. That's where all his reading took him. He's not trusting in his repentance or all the reforms that he brought to the nation. No, those came as a result of God's work in him. He was trusting in God's grace. He was trusting in God's provision of righteousness. That's why he turned to the Lord so strongly. It's why he brought about so many reforms. Is because of grace that was happening in his heart. And so his reforms did not bring about his salvation. His reforms were the result of his salvation. His heart was humbled beneath the word of God because God gave him a heart to believe the word of God. Gave him a heart to trust the word of God. And so his joy in the word of God was an effect of God's grace, not to earn God's grace. It's so important. That just being scholars of the Bible won't save us, right? It didn't save the Pharisees who knew their Old Testaments better than most of us. Didn't save the Sadducees who argued all day long about the legal meaning of Scripture. They missed the whole point of the Bible. They missed that what God was doing was exposing their sinfulness through his word, showing them their need for mercy through the word, and then leading them to their only hope of redemption through his word. They missed all that. And so in whose righteousness do you trust? It's another question to consider for this morning. In whose righteousness do you trust? Do you look to your law-keeping or Christ's law-keeping? Do you look to your works or Christ's works? Your reading of Scripture or Christ's fulfilling Scripture? Your sacrifice to pay for your sins or Christ's sacrifice to pay for your sins? Your righteous response to God's Word or Christ's righteous response to God's Word? They sound similar, but they're on two different sides of a chasm. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 5, verse 39. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. What a statement. Like you read the whole Old Testament because you're convinced that in them is the key to eternal life. And you're right. It's just, it's not a ladder to climb to heaven. No, it's these scriptures that actually testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. It's one of the reasons why dealing with the fear of man in your life is so important. Because fearing people, desiring the pleasure of people and the glory of people will handicap your faith in Christ. It will paralyze your faith in Christ. He says it right there. How can you believe if you're so concerned and preoccupied with what people think about you? How can you hear me and trust Christ? If your life ambition is to receive glory from people, 
Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So that's the books that Josiah is hearing. And God's giving him the faith to look forward and go, okay, this is not about me. This is not about everything I do. This is about, this is testifying about somebody who's coming, who's going to keep all this perfectly, who's going to pay for my sin perfectly, who's going to give me a righteousness that I can wear perfectly in the presence of God. He's the key to my salvation. He's the key to my redemption. He's the one by which I'm reconciled to God. And now I'm reconciled, forgiven, and free, and I'm just going to turn my whole life over to him and follow him and put myself under the word of God. And all the reforms and all the change in his life is all going to come as a result of that. So we should search the scriptures because in them is eternal life because they bear witness of Jesus Christ in whom is the life. So it's no ordinary book. These aren't ordinary words. It's not a self-help manual. Now, when the Holy Spirit illumines us to them, they show us the ugliness of our sin before God. They show us the glory of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and they make him irresistible to us. And we start hearing them as words from the Father, as him speaking to us. Now prayer becomes a humble response to these words that he has spoken. The word of God declares the gospel to us, and the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And once it brings salvation to us, well, then we just keep reading it, keep studying it, keep feasting upon it, keep using it as the light before our path, keep using it as the beautiful revelation of who God is, keep using it as the wisdom for our life, the words that we convey to one another, the words that humble us and feed us and delight us and encourage us. It shows us where we're going. There's an end to the story. <clears throat> to dwell forever with the King of kings and Lord of lords. So yeah, we'll see Josiah there, but we'll also see Jesus there. Who is the satisfaction of God's justice on our behalf. Who sits enthroned in heaven. Who waits to receive us into his everlasting glory. And that's where we'll be with him forever. So yeah, questions, comments, thoughts about, we've got a few minutes left about Josiah and the word and the satisfaction of God. Questions, comments about 2 Kings 22, 23. Josh, yes. He was talking about the false what? False oh, narratives, false narratives. Yes. Yeah, so in the men's retreat, Kevin Hale was talking about false narratives. Yeah. So a narrative is a story. So if we even take the Bible from beginning to end, it's sort of one big story. And God is revealed in the story. The people of God are revealed in the story, how salvation works, who we are apart from Christ, who we are in Christ, what God is doing with us and through us, where everything's going. And so that is sort of God's narrative, God's story that is the truth that is meant to explain us, illumine us, guide us, lead us, compel us, humble us. And what Satan comes in and does is sort of try to tell another narrative. So God's going to say to Adam and Eve, you eat the fruit, you'll surely die. So there's a story. Satan says, well, you won't surely die. He's just, if you eat of it, you'll be like him. Well, there's a, compete, there's a false narrative that God says this, Satan is going to say this. God's going to say, yeah, here's what I desire from you, is faith, repentance, relying upon grace. The Pharisees are going to say, no, no, you need to keep these traditions and these rules and do this and don't do this, and this is how you are saved. So there's a false narrative. God's going to say, yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead. 
there's going to be false prophets that come along and say, yeah, he was never raised from the dead. So there's a false narrative that's right there with the true narrative. And so what he was saying is the gospel is the true narrative that our life is meant to sort of put to death and put down all these other competing narratives. So, yeah. 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 And it's, it's a, a way of talking about the scripture and explaining it that if you're not familiar with it at first, it's, it's confusing. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Good question. Well, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we do pray that your word would compel us, convict us, consume us, that we would feed and feast on this word every day, that even as we gather now as a church in these moments ahead, that we would receive the preaching of your word, that we would pray through your word, that we would sing your word, that we would minister your word to one another. This is not an idle word. This is our life. And so we pray that you would make your word sweeter to us than honey. You'd make it more glorious to us, richer to us than gold, that we would believe this about your word, that every day would be in your word, that we would be a people of your word. We especially thank you for Jesus, who's our redeemer, who has satisfied your wrath and justice, who has satisfied your righteousness, who provides a righteousness for us. And we long for that day when we'll see him face to face. In his name we pray, amen.